0: day to you all from Scarswell, where the sea is jet black but our hearts are pure. Today we have a story from one of Scarswell's older residents, telling of a time when horse-drawn carts still rattled up and down the streets, and the high seas were a strange and lawless place. Rest assured that we didn't feel the need to change a word of this story. I want to talk about something that happened to me when I was very young. I could only have been seven or eight years old. But that's an awful long time ago now, and I'm not at all sure I can remember all of the details. You'll have to forgive me that. And if there are any obvious mistakes in this letter, perhaps I can rely on you to edit them out for me. I grew up on one of the many narrow streets down by Scarswell Harbour. Today, A lot of people will tell you that all those streets are the same. But back then, at least, each one felt like its own little community. There were the greying bricks of Harper Street, the broken-down and boarded-up house at the end of Rottingwell Row. And then there were the modest front gardens of Fishwell Lane, where my mother and I lived. I used to run out in my bare feet in the mornings, along with all of the other young boys. We would watch the fishing boats come in to unload their catch. Silvery, the fish were, pouring all over each other as the men dumped them out onto the quay. We used to stand there on the docks and try to guess which one would end up in our pie for dinner that day. That one, we'd say. That one right there. He's a cheerful looking fellow. It was a silly game, but still, something tells me I was right more often than the rest. You see, one of the fishermen, a grizzled old sort called Michael Crabclaw, lived across the street from my mother and me, and no matter how much my mother protested, he would always insist on personally bringing her the finest specimen of the day, and letting her have it for a song. Not even a very good song, either. And so, by the time I came home from school, after whatever transaction had occurred between my protesting mother and the fishy hands of Michael Crabclaw, the air would already be filled with the comforting smells of flaky white fish, creamy sauce, and golden-topped mashed potatoes, and the scales, tails, and guts, lobbed into the alley for the cats, would have been polished off sharpish, There might have been something else going on between my mother and Michael Crabclaw, and there might not. By the time I was old enough to suspect anything, I was old enough to hope that it wasn't happening, because Michael Crabclaw's wife was a kindly lady who smiled at me from her little front garden as I set off to school, no doubt she was waiting for her husband's return, and who dropped off a paper package of butter toffees for me every Christmas. So when I heard that Mrs. Crabclaw was unwell, with a strange disease that nobody mentioned by name, but which caused adults to lower their eyes in solemn respect, I was terribly sad. Not even sad, but afraid. Soon enough, she disappeared from the front garden where I was so used to seeing her. And while Michael would still catch my eye on the fish key and give me a wink or a wave, he would get right back to his work, hurry through whatever he had to do, and scarp a home without a second word, less still the chance to bump into him in the alley and share a joke. I would look up at the window of their narrow, terraced house, and I would know that Mrs. Crabclaw, the smiling woman who treated me so fondly, was lying there in bed in a darkened room, and all I could hope was that she was comfortable and happy. My grandkids wouldn't believe it, but back then there were still horses and carts on the streets. A few times a day I'd hear the heavy rumble of cart wheels, and I'd dash down the narrow staircase and into the street, in time to see the magnificent shire horses dragging their burdens by. They were huge and muscular beasts, but they didn't scare me. What scared me was what I saw when they had finished rolling by. I looked across the street at the Crabclaw's house, and I knew that sometime soon, things would change, forever. Nobody had said it out loud, but I realised well enough that Mrs. Crabclaw was going to die. And she was probably going to die soon. One rainy day, I found myself stuck in the house. No sense in running down to the docks in the rain, nor in playing in the street with any of the others my age. My mother would tan my hide if I tracked mud and dust and gravel into the house. She must have recognised the risk, though, because she told me I ought to make myself useful rather than possering around the house. Take these over to Mrs. Crabclaw, she said. I'm sure she'd be happy to see you and she held out to me a bunch of flowers they might have been roses or they might have been daisies or they might have been anything else i didn't know a thing about flowers as a boy and i still don't i was terrified of course i didn't know how mrs crabclaw would look didn't know what kinds of strange and haunting smells i'd encounter in the room felt like i was intruding severely on her privacy And on Michael's too. Like I was going to get my first juvenile look at the possibility of death, and I wasn't ready for it at all. Well, like I was saying, my mother was a pretty serious sort back then, and I was just a little lad. I wasn't about to have it out with her. So I duly took the fistful of flowers, probably back then they'd have been wrapped in newspaper and sheltered under my coat and ran across the street to tap smartly on the Crabclaw's front door. It took a while for the door to open, and I thought I might get to run back across the street and tell my mum, absurdly, that there was nobody there. But once the rain had lashed down for a while on me as I sheltered the flowers with my body, the door duly swung open, and the worn and smiling face of Michael Crabclaw Awaited me on the threshold. Look who it is, he said. Go on up. She can't wait to see you. How did he know I was there to see his wife? At the time, this felt like some great mystery, but now I realise it wasn't, not at all. He saw the bunch of flowers in my hand, and he knew I was there to pay my respects and most likely his wife had been nattering on about me for days, too. Like I said, she was pretty sweet on me. I don't know why I was expecting her to look any different. After I had creaked up the stairs and tapped on the open bedroom door, I saw that Mrs. Crabclaw was propped up in bed, watching the rain drumming hard on the dusty glass of the window and the empty street outside. I saw you coming, she said. I didn't know what to say, so I stood there in the doorway for a while longer, the flowers hanging limp in my hand, water dripping onto the floorboards from the hems of my coat. Well, she said, do come in. I couldn't see where I was supposed to go, where I was supposed to stand. There wasn't a chair beside the bed or anything like that. Just more dusty floorboards. The bed. The window. The ramshackle old wardrobe standing tall in one corner of the room. A load of stuff piled at the top of it that looked to my eyes like fishing nets. I had it in my mind that you were supposed to ask old people about the old days. Ask them to relive stories from their youth. To talk about how Scarswell used to look back in the days before the war, before they extended the railway line down here and you had to trek across the South Downs to make it to the tiny village that Scarswell was, back when Queen Victoria was still on the throne. But I remembered that Mrs. Crabclaw wasn't even old. She was just sick. Sicker than a woman her age ought to be. Did you know my dad? I said I just blurted it out and I wasn't sure where it had come from once I felt I'd made some grave mistake my father was never spoken about in our house and I'd never plucked up the courage to ask anybody outside of it to my surprise Mrs. Crabclaw's weary smile only widened oh yes she said Oh, yes. Her eyes slid out of focus. She looked into the middle distance. What was he like? I said. Mrs. Crabclaw let out a long sigh. It looked like she was taking a lot of effort to get her thoughts into order, and I felt guilty for making her do it. Lovely man, she said. Oh, yes, a splendid man. Marvellous fisherman. He was a fisherman, I said. I don't know why I sounded surprised. Back then, everyone in Scarswell was a fisherman. I had an instant image of my father, swashbuckling and brave in his oilskins, standing at the bow of a trawler as the waves of the North Sea broke all around him. Mrs. Crabclaw only nodded. "'What did he get up to?' I said, excited now. "'He must have had lots of adventures.' "'Adventures?' Mrs. Crabclaw murmured. She looked into the distance again, like she was trying to stare through the wall and through the walls of all the other houses on the street. "'Well, I don't know about adventures.' You could ask him yourself, though. He's downstairs. I screwed up my face, confused. Downstairs? Oh, yes. Only don't bother him too much, love. He's just back from work and it's been a long night. Mrs. Crabclaw closed her eyes and settled back against the pillows, and my heart sank just a bit. She was confused. She was talking now about her husband. About Michael, who was sitting downstairs in their tiny kitchen. I could hear the riffling sounds of the newspaper he was reading. Thanks, I said, but I don't think she heard me. I went back down the stairs, and I didn't say a word to Michael as I let myself out the front door. Like she said, he'd had a busy night. He must have been tired. I was just stepping past the low wall and into our own front garden when I realized I still had the flowers, drooping limply from my clenched fist. No point, I suppose, in dragging out this part of the story. And as a boy of eight, I wasn't given much information about it anyway. Doubtless, nobody imagined I was capable of understanding. At least... That was how it seemed at first. It was, actually, when I was on my way out, down to the docks with the other boys, down to our before-school ritual of watching the fishing boats come in, when my mother told me. She caught me around the shoulders, once I was already barreling down the stairs and about to make it out into the street. She got down to my level, sitting down on the bottom step but one in the way parents sometimes do with children younger than I was. I was almost as tall as her by then, after all. Mrs. Crabclaw isn't going to be around anymore, she said. Do you understand? I must have looked at her strangely. What wasn't there to understand? I was eight, not eight months. I knew what it meant for people to die. Or I thought I did anyway. So all I did was nod, slowly. And my mum must have taken this for a sign that I was rendered wordless with grief, because she hugged me tight around the shoulders in a way she never usually did, and sent me straight back upstairs to get ready for school. No trip to see the fishing boats that day, apparently. My mother must have thought it wouldn't be appropriate. And once I set out to walk to school, I was struck by how unchanged the street was by Mrs. Crabclaw's passing. No horses and carts that early in the morning, just the flow of kids like me, dragging their feet on the way to the old brick schoolhouse around the corner. I looked up at Mrs. Crabclaw's window and I wondered if she was still there, covered by sheets and blankets and waiting to be taken away to wherever it was that dead people went or if she had already gone. It was only a couple of days later that things got to be very strange indeed. My mother had told me that, while I should spare a kind word for Michael Crabclaw if I bumped into him in the street, I shouldn't go looking for him. Not yet, she said. It was too soon for that, and Michael was the kind of man who needed to be left alone to grieve. He didn't need some eight-year-old boy getting all caught up under his feet while he was trying to mourn the passing of his wife. All of this was why it came as such a surprise when, in the evening, Michael showed up on our doorstep. I crouched at the top of the stairs, listening to his and my mother's murmuring voices, their heads close together, their words obscured. This went on for a minute or two, and then my mother called my name. I retreated back into the shadows of the landing, pretending I hadn't been straining my ears to hear their secret conversation. Michael would like to speak with you, she said, and I slunk down the stairs, surprised. Good evening, I said, confused, stiff and strained in my words, not sure what was expected of me. I'm so terribly sorry for your loss. Michael nodded solemnly, or he tried to. Something about hearing these words come out of the mouth of a small boy made him crack a smile, in spite of himself, and he swallowed it back. My mother, still standing there in the hallway and sensing that awkwardness was setting in, prompted us both to further conversation. Michael would like to ask you something, she said. So this was how I ended up, wrapped in two big oilskins, at Michael's side on his boat, bobbing out into the English Channel in the dead of night. Naturally, I had said yes. My mother would have given me a hiding, I'm sure, if I turned down the request of a grieving man. But now that we were here, I realized I had no idea what to do with myself. I had never even been on a boat before. And if my father really was a fisherman, as Mrs. Crabclaw had told me not so long ago, I wasn't sure I'd inherited his sea legs. It was a calm night, at least. No angry raging waves, no wind and rain lashing us. Just bright, clear moonlight throwing its glow over Michael Crabclaw's craggy face as he sorted through great piles of nets and lines sitting in the floor of the boat. There were big wooden buoys, too, and rods, and things I barely recognised at all, what looked like a pile of sailcloth, even though the boat had no sails. He had told me he needed help, that the man he employed to help on the boat was unavailable, and that I was the best man for the job. But now it seemed he was much too distracted to get much fishing done. I felt stupid for standing there, watching wished I could be of some use, whether it be with the fishing tackle or with some words of wisdom. What did you say to a man who had just lost his wife? I knew on some level that I was too young for all of this, and that I couldn't be expected to console a man four or five times my age. Still, I wished there was some way I could. Michael, meanwhile, was mumbling to himself, He kept looking around us, and then down at the bottom of the boat, and then up at the sky. It was a clear night, and I remember wondering if he was navigating by the stars. I had heard this spoken about, and had no idea what it meant. An hour or two must have passed in this way, with Michael muttering to himself, moving from the boat's little wheelhouse back to the piles of stuff on the deck, sometimes giving me a strange little nod like I was in on some conspiracy with him. By now it was the small hours of the morning. I was just a young boy, and I hadn't slept. I sat down and leaned against the gunwale of the fishing boat. I didn't mean for it to happen, but there under the moonlight, lulled by the gentle rocking of the waves, the lapping sounds of their breaking against the painted wooden sides of the boat, I must have fallen asleep. Minutes might have passed, or hours. There were any number of things going on around me that might have woken me. But nothing did, until I heard an almighty splash, somewhere to my side. I lurched awake and turned to see Michael Crabclaw, looking over the side of the boat, into the deep waters of the channel from whence the splash had come. It felt like minutes passed before, eventually, he turned back to me. He didn't look at all surprised to see me watching him, intently, wondering what I had just witnessed. For the second time in a few days, I had the experience of an adult crouching down to my level. Michael looked intensely into my eyes, like he was reading something behind my expression. Now, son, he said, It's important that you don't tell anyone what you saw here. Do you understand? I didn't understand, because I hadn't seen a thing. But I nodded, and Michael, satisfied, stood up, dusted off his hands, and I sensed that our little adventure was coming to an end. That was all many decades ago. Michael Crabclaw, you'll be pleased to know, lived a long and healthy life. And while we still nodded to each other in the street, and while he still brought my mother the finest fish of the day, we never again had another of our adventures. Still, in those little nods, it felt like there was more understanding than before. Nowadays, Scarswell doesn't have a lot of fishing boats. It's all container ships and cruise ships now. And sometimes I think it's a shame. Whatever goes on in the waters off the coast of Scarswell, whoever or whatever is down there, I feel like we owe them some peace and quiet. Here at the Scarswell Tourists Information Office, we rely on our listeners. If you enjoy our stories, please consider supporting us on Patreon, and find our newsletter, merch, and more at scarswellonsea.com. We'll see you in two weeks. We're so very sorry.